if you'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we've been looking at it bit by bit, and uh, we started, I think last month, well not this month, wasn't it, but last time I was here, uh, on the first three verses, I think it was, I want us to continue tonight, um, verses 4 to 6. 2 Corinthians, I think I've said previously, is neglected by many folk. They know a little bit about 1 Corinthians, but their knowledge of 2 Corinthians is limited. And there are latterly in the end, towards the end, more narrative and <coughs> Paul talking about his experience and so on. Um, but the first few chapters, particularly 3 and 4 and 5, are jammed packed with great truth almost every verse is um, as we might say solid stuff I was thinking about how do you illustrate this and I thought well I could give a very simple illustration some might understand it uh, chefs uh, good chefs posh chefs have what they call signature dishes alright signature menus if you ever watch any of these programs you know what I'm talking about well I think I have a signature dish, which I briefly will share to you. Uh, I've shared it with some friends who come to see me sometimes. And it's a sandwich. But it's not just an ordinary sandwich. This is a deluxe sandwich. What I do firstly, uh, it's a bacon sandwich. But then, on top of the bacon, I put a fried egg. And occasionally I've been known to put a bit of fried mushrooms and onions and then the bread. It's absolutely lush. I can see some of you drilling already, right? If you're very good, I might invite you one day to it. Right? Now that's my signature dish. Oh. Now, it's packed full. And these verses are packed full. And therefore, I'm not going to rush through them just to make sure, let's just be sure we'll do it before 2030, before the Lord comes or whatever. No, we will do what we do, all right? And I hope the Lord will help us and bless us in what we do. We started off by looking at verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, which has been described in chapter 3, as we have received mercy, we faint not. We don't give up. Uh, we don't collapse. We faint not. And there's a danger in Christian life, and particularly in Christian service, whatever that may be, of being faint and faint-hearted and giving up. Uh, and it's quite sad, and you hear of people who say, oh, I've given up this work, or I used to do that for the Lord, but I've given it up. And there are lots of reasons. There may be good reasons. Uh, uh, physically, they can't cope, or, or they busy with other things. Lots of reasons. But there's a temptation to be faint-hearted and to give up. And particularly for those in leadership. Um, I'm sure many of you know people who are in leadership, whether they're pastors or, or involved in some Christian work, and they're having tough times and, and difficult times. And sometimes those times, sometimes those things are caused by people in the church. And it's very hard for them and they need to be encouraged and prayed for and supported. So we started on that basis, and then we looked at verse 2 and about the other folk who handle the word of God dishonestly and walk in craftiness. 
and handle the word of God deceitfully. But we are not like that, says Paul. We, by the manifestation of the truth, commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We serve God in the sight of God, before the face of God. And then uh, we looked a little at verse 3. But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And we spent a little bit of time, as I remember, uh, looking at lostness. It's a, a terrible thing to be lost, uh, physically lost, and certainly spiritually lost. The word can mean perish. It's a, it's a, it's a sad, sad word. And I mentioned that uh, about lostness, that we are born lost. It's not that we start right and we, we go astray. We're actually born lost. That's what we call the doctrine of original sin. Nobody was born perfect, perfectly. We were born with this bias towards sin. We were prone to wander from our mother's womb. And that's the doctrine of original sin. We've all been affected with it. The only person that wasn't affected by it was the Lord Jesus Christ. All the rest of us, we are, we are prone, we have this bias towards sin. We're born in lostness. But then we continue to be lost and want to be lost because it means we do our own thing and go our own way. And we don't want to be turned to another way. We don't want to be turned to God's way. We'd rather live in a state of lostness and yield our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. How sad is this? Now, there's another element which I want us to look at this evening in verse 4. <clears throat> so we're talking about lostness, right? And it's not just a question of us being lost and sin in us causing the lostness and our desire to live as we please, but there is an enemy. There's another factor in this lostness. And the other factor is the one whom Paul describes as the God of this world. He's talking about the devil. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about our adversary. And he describes him in this phrase, the God with a small g of this world. Now the subject of Satan and the devil and, and evil and, and all that is a big subject. And uh, I don't want to go through it in any particular depth. I think we have to remember that the Bible teaches there is a person called Satan, the devil. And we believe, because it seems that that's what the scripture teaches clearly, that he is a fallen angel. God didn't create the devil as the devil. God created that which was pure and perfect. He was an angel, perhaps the brightest and the best of the angels. But God gave this angel a will. That was beginning, and in the beginning was pure and perfect. But it would seem that this angel, as beautiful and as pure and perfect as he was, yet he wanted not to be a second in command, if you like, but he wanted to be on a par with God. He wanted to be on the same level with God. And God said no, and he cast him out of heaven with all his followers. And uh, now some would say, well, that's true, and I believe in the devil, and I believe he was powerful, but not all powerful. But that was the days of the Bible. That doesn't happen anymore. I find difficulty with that. 
My difficulty is this, that there are verses in the Bible that teach us to be aware of him. Uh, Peter talks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be aware of him. Be aware of his activities and his temptations and all the rest of it. Now, if that was only for the New Testament time, then I can ignore that because it's not for me for today. Because, well, he's been defeated by the Lord and, he's, and that's the end of him. I can't see that. I can't see it in the Bible. I can't see it in the world. Like somebody said, if there's not a devil, who's doing his work? And uh, there are grades of sin and of evil. You know that. Jesus talks about he who had the greatest sin, Judas. Right? And so there are degrees of sinfulness. Sin is sin, but there are degrees of sin. There are degrees of evil. And I, I, I hope you'd agree with me that we're living in days when the degree of sin has heightened or deepened, if you like. There have always been bad things happening. But if the evolutionists are correct, you see, these bad things that people do to one another should be less and less and less because people are getting more and more educated and they're, and they're growing with a knowledge of things and of other peoples and, and folk with whom they differ and that knowledge should, be, to, should create a perfect state. Can you see it? Can you see it anywhere? A famous philosopher wrote uh, The Ascent of Man and now you can buy his book for 50p in a charity shop. I wouldn't bother. All right? The ascent of man. I think we're entitled to say, where's your proof? Where's your proof that man is ascending? Man's getting better. He's evolving. Where's your proof? Animals behave better than humans. If dear Mr. Attenborough is right, and we're moving upwards and onwards, and yet he tells about all the animals who behave in a, in a reasonable way. They behave better than human people. Humans wouldn't do what animals do. Destroying one another for no cause and no reason. And uh, they've always been murders way back to Cain and Abel. But the degree and the horrendous nature of some murders and killings, there's something devilish about it seems to me. Attacks on women. There's always been attacks on women. But it's not just the attacks and the physical abuse, and it's the violence and depravity of some of these attacks. To me, that's devilish. And the other thing that really sets the ceiling for me is abuse of children and babies. One of the reasons why God said to Moses, that when Joshua comes into the land, they had to destroy the heathen, was because of the depravity of their practices, one of which was sacrificing their children to their gods. It was devilish. And God said, time has come, judgment has come, I want you to wipe them out. Now, if you don't know about these things, you look at the Old Testament, and say, oh, this God of the Old Testament, he's a, he's a bad God, he's a tyrant of a God. He wants to slam everybody, just go, his chosen little few can go and live in their land. Oh, God is against the nations, not because just of their paganism and their heathenism, but because of their devilish practices. They're almost literally worshipping the devil and his cohorts. So we need to be serious about this. 
Now, I, under, I, I understand there are some folk who go to the extreme of this and say, yes, I agree with you, uh, Mr. Lyshen. Yes, it's terrible. And they're all over the place, these, these evil spirits and these unclean spirits and these demons and, and so forth. And then you have a, almost a, a doctrine or a system of belief that if there's anything wrong with you, you've got an evil spirit in you. If you cough, <coughs> you've got an evil spirit of a cough in you. Now, you might smile at that. Sadly, it's, it's taken serious by some people. Now, we're not going there. But we are saying that satanic activity is rife, and particularly in some parts of the world. The enemy seems to be having free course. Now, we have to say, don't we, just to reassure ourselves, God is sovereign. And God is sovereign over all things, including the enemy. And if you know Job, well, you know Satan comes and he, and he talks about <coughs> Job. He talks about people generally serving God. And God said, no, you consider my servant Job. And, and, and Satan said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he only serves you for what he can get out of you because you look after him and bless him. If you didn't look after him, he'd, serve, he'd soon curse you. Mm, says God. Well, I'll give him over to you. But you don't touch, his, don't touch him. And you know the story. And then later, Satan comes back. He's failing his first mission. And he tries again. And God says, all right, I'll give him over to you. But don't take his life from him. So Satan is under the sovereign control of God. He only does what God allows him to do for God's own purposes. So when we come to the Bible, <coughs> there are lots of references to the power of the enemy all right, God with a small g, we keep stressing that. And there's some verses you, you know well. Uh, for example, in Ephesians, when the, Paul talks about these believers and what they were before they were converted, he describes them as th like this, verse 1, chapter 2. And ye was God made alive, who were dead in trespasses and in sins, and as your state, spiritually. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, now listen to this, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So here they are, that's what their past life, before they were converted, before they became Christians, they, were, were, they lived in this world, they walked according to the pattern of this world, and they were subject to the power of the prince of the air, the prince of the power of the air, the spiritual forces. And then right in uh, further to the Ephesians, you know that passage about the spiritual warfare in chapter 6. And he, this is what he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, if the devil is no longer any, uh, any power, then we can write off the last uh, part of Ephesians 6 because it's got no relevance to us. But it has, because he has power. He has his forces. And they are arrayed against the people of God. Put on the whole armor of God that he might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, and so on. The enemy is real. 
And one of the activities of the enemy is to keep people in the dark. Satan hates the light. And he hates people coming into the light, the light of the gospel. You all know the story of the sower in the gospels and uh, with slight variations it's more or less the same throughout and there are one or two little variations and uh, we don't have to worry about that Uh, the one I want to quote you from is in Luke in Luke's gospel Now, I won't go through all the parable but you know the first Jesus says a sower went out to sow and he sowed and as he sowed some fell on the wayside and was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. So here's this, this sower, he's got a bag of seed uh, uh, stopped on his shoulder, and he's walking across, along the path, and the fields are either side, he chucks it, chucks it, chucks, chucks it, and that's the way he goes. And some inevitably falls on the path. It doesn't fall into the prepared ground either side. It falls on the path that is well trodden, and so it doesn't go down. And after he's walked along, along come the birds, and pick it up, and pick it up. Now, Jesus himself gives the explanation of that little part. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then comes the devil and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So here are these people. They hear the gospel. And then before they get a chance to get in, into any depth, to affect their hearts and their minds, the enemy comes in and takes it away. Brings, take, brings something else to their mind. And it's gone. It's gone. Now that's an activity of the enemy. Here says Paul, if a gospel be hid, it is hid to those who are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not. They're blind. They cannot see. Forgive me for mentioning Mr. Attenborough, Sir Attenborough, again. Here's a man who can see the wonders of creation. He can see it. He can describe it eloquently. He can explain some of the things. But he can't see God. He can't see the Creator. The poor man is blind. He sees everything and sees nothing. He cannot see that there must be an intelligent mind behind all that he can see with his eyes. He, he must. Why can't he see that? He's blind. I saw a program this week. I mentioned it on Thursday, I think, about earthworms. Oh, earthworms are wonderful. Aren't they, Ben? Earthworms are lovely, right? Let's share three cheers for the earthworm. Amazing little thing, this little worm. Right? And they can't see it. Here is a creation of God. This little worm. These little maggots. These teeny weeny little things. Creation of God. They didn't just come by accident. There used to uh, be a thing with the um, truth. What is it? Something to do with creation and, and truth and so on. They used to have these little things. And uh, I, uh, I remember the, the bombardier beetle. Right? Does that mean anything to you? You're far too young, some of you, I don't know. The bombardier beetle, right? He's got two little compartments in, the, in his back end, and there's a little chemical here and a little chemical there, right? 
And when he's attacked, he mixes them and squirts it. And bang! Right? Anything is coming to attack. That's the end of him. Now, the thing is, little bombardier beetle, if he gets it wrong, it backfires, literally. <laughs> he's blown up. Right? He's got to get it right. So that bit of chemical mixing, he's got to get it right first time, every time. Now, he can't go through a period of experiment. How does this work? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll try 40% of this and 60% of that. See if that works. Bang! He's not going to have another chance, is he? He can't say, oh, that didn't work. Right, I'll try something else. I'll try 40 of this and 60 of that. Bang, that doesn't work. Well, no, he can't. He's got to get it right first time. Now, you reasonable people, most of you reasonable clever, and you can see that, can't you? You haven't got a brilliant mind to see that bombardier beetle had to get it right from day one. How did he get it right from day one? Because he was created by an infinite God. Look it up. Look it up, right? Um... I hope I've, I've, I hope I've given the right facts, but it's something like that. Now, these people are blind. Richard Attenborough and other people. And you get celebrities come on the channel and they say things like, oh, why didn't you just stay home and sing or do something? Right? They've got no sense. Because that which is obvious, I love that little verse in the Psalms, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Not the clever person, the educated person, the person who's got all his what's it and things. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Romans 1 speaks about the similar thing, but the things of God are clearly seen. They're not hidden. They're not hidden. The sun's not hidden. How did it come into being? Oh, well, there was an explosion. How, what caused the explosion? From whence come the, came the explosion? There's cause and effect. Some of you will understand that. Cause and effect. There can't be an effect without a cause. What caused it? Well, and they don't know. R.C. Sproul has got a lovely expression. Um, uh, nothing can come from nothing. That is fundamental to physics, to science. Nothing can come from nothing. There must be something to have something else. So where did it come from? Well, it came from a God who is the creator, who is outside of material and outside of our universe and creates the universe and all that there is therein. But these people are blind. Enough. They... He, the God of this world, has blinded the eyes of them that believe not. Why? Well, here's the reason given. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. What a verse. Never mind all the other bits and pieces and unbelievers and the fools and so forth. What a little verse is this. Right? The light is a description of the gospel. The light of the glorious gospel of Christ. This gospel is about Christ and it's glorious because it's about the glory of Christ. The glorious gospel of Christ. 
It's full of glory. It's full of good news. It's full of Christ. What a gospel. No wonder um, when Haim wrote that hymn, Great is the gospel of our blessed God. Great is this gospel. He's not exaggerating. He's not building it up. He had a lovely little phrase. Uh, press the pause button a minute. Beep. He had a lovely little, little description of a normal service we would have in our services, in our, in our um, circles. He said, this goes back to my bacon and egg sandwich. He said, some people, he said, they call our, our services hymn sandwiches. Right? You got the hymn sandwiches. So we have a, a hymn and we have a reading of a hymn and we have prayer, we have a, a hymn and then a message and a hymn and we got, they call it a hymn sandwich. Well, he said, uh, you've got to really have a Welsh accent to do this, right? But, uh, but I'll try. Right? He said, well, he said, we start with a hymn about God, the creator, the glories of a God. He speaks then about the first hymn. And the second then, we have pray. And we come before this God, this great God. And we praise him and worship him and adore him and we bring our petitions to him and all this was prayer. And then we sing another hymn. Perhaps this will be about the Lord Jesus and his person and his work and so forth. And, and then we'll, we'll have a reading, a reading from the word of God, the Bible, God revealing himself, God committing himself to a book inspired by his spirit, the Bible. Nothing better than the Bible, the best book in the world, the Bible, the very word of God. And then we'll have another hymn, perhaps uh, uh, seeking to, to encourage us uh, to trust the Lord or follow the Lord and so forth. And then we'll have a message based on the Bible about this God, about this Christ, and so on, and the work of salvation and redemption. And we'll have a final hymn in petition or, or praise or whatever. A hymn sandwich. What a sandwich. Isn't that good? What a sandwich. I like those kind of sandwiches. Almost as good as my big egg. Now, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. There's nothing better, greater, higher, deeper, wider than the gospel of Christ. Because it's full of glory. John introduces us in chapter 1 of his gospel. He doesn't speak about the actual birth of the Lord Jesus. But he does speak about this person who is the Word, who was with God, who was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were created by him and for him. You know, you know the verses well, all right, in John chapter 1. And then... He goes on to say later on in the verse, let me just get it exactly. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. What kind of glory did we behold? Or did John behold? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. 
You see, when the Bible describes the glories of the Lord Jesus, it's not just fine, fancy words. In, in fact, words are inadequate to describe the glory of the Lord Jesus. John says here, he is full of grace and truth. That's what makes him glorious. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. He's full of truth. He's full of graciousness. He is glorious in that graciousness. He's glorious in that truth. He is full of truth, full of grace. We beheld his glory glory of the Lord Jesus, the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God. Later on, the writer of the Hebrews will uh, describe the Lord Jesus in similar terms. Right in the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, let me just find it exactly for you. Here we are. God, who at sundry times in different ways spoke in the times past the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory, here it is again, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here he is. He's glorious. He's the very image of God. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we'll be, and it'll suffice us. Jesus said, listen, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You won't get anything different. High and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. You cannot see the God, see the Father, because he's immortal, invisible, God only ways. But you can see me, and that's all you need to see, because I'm the very image of God. I am God. And the glory of God is mine. And I display it to you. Is this beyond you? This is beyond me. I can shout and spout, but dear ones, this is beyond us but we can still enjoy it. I don't necessarily know the constituents of my egg and bacon sandwich. I know a bit, but I don't know the chemicals involved. But it doesn't stop me enjoying it. <laughs> Somebody might say, well, if you knew what was in it, the glorious gospel of Christ as the image should shine into them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. Why would you want to preach anything else? Why would you want to talk about anything else? Why would you want to talk about yourself if you're going to talk about Jesus? Some did. Some in Corinth did. These people came in and said, Dear, don't bother with that, that little Jewish man, that little... Paul, he's probably a bit squint and he looks he's a bit on the short side and all the rest of it. Oh, don't bother him. He's not, he can't speak very well. He, he hasn't got oratory. Not like us. Oh, we've been trained in the schools uh, of, of the Greek philosophers and, uh, and great uh, autorians. All right? These great speakers. Listen to us. Because you'll have to pay for the privilege. But you listen to us. They preach themselves with their oratory and their fine words but it did nobody any good but Paul preaches Jesus because there's everything in him 
to love and to want and nothing in, in him not to want and not to love this glorious Savior. We preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus. And then finally, and we'll be fairly brief, verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying something similar again, but in a different way. You remember Genesis chapter 1. Well, of course, you say, it's about creation. Yeah, but how well do you know it? We don't know it as well as our forefathers knew it, I think. But you know, it records, I believe, a literal, actual, physical creation. And we are told in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay. And the earth was without form, was void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Okay. Then verse 3. God starts. And God said, Let there be light, and... Are you sure? Some, half of you know and half of you don't. I'll try again. And God said, let there be light. And there, hey, got it. Six out of ten. All right? God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. And it was good. Well, of course it was good because God did it. And everything that God does is good. And God saw it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the day, light day and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. This is before he created the sun. That's interesting. Now, Paul seems to me to have an allusion to that. Right? God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. This is the first act of creation. Total darkness, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God says to a soul that is in darkness, that is lost, that is perishing, God says, let there be light, and there was light. And light shines into our hearts, and to our minds, and to our wills, and our understanding. Conversion is a great creational act of God. Do you see that? Oh, we, 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 some people say, well, we, we make a little decision for Jesus, or we sign a card, or we put our hand up, or we say a little prayer, and we're converted. Oh, dear ones, don't minimize, don't devalue conversion. True conversion is a great sovereign act of the Creator God. And it takes that to save a sinner like you and a sinner like me, because we are lost and we're in the dark. And we need an almighty God to intervene. And nobody but nobody is saved unless God intervenes sovereignly, almightily. Hallelujah. Isn't it great? It's good, it's good stuff, isn't it? God commanded the light to shine out and it shone in our hearts. And what has he given us in this light? Well, listen, to give the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But he's always said that already. Well, yes, but he's saying it again because it's so wonderful. Why wouldn't you want to not say it again? Right? That's what God does. He shines. He shines light into our dark hearts. I don't know if you've ever been anywhere very dark and then you've had a torch and you've shone and, uh, and things you, you found perhaps in an attic or somewhere and you think, wow, I never realised this was there. Oh, this is old Granny's photo album or whatever. It's, or it's whatever you find in your attic, right? And the treasures are there, apart from the dust and stuff. But the treasures are there. The light reveals it. And what Paul is saying, the gospel light that God shines in our hearts reveals the treasure of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There are so many treasures in him. Our Savior is so glorious. There's so much in him for his people. And we know so little. God have mercy upon our ignorance. The knowledge of God. The glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. Have you on the Lord believed? Still there's more to follow. Have you of his grace received? Still, there's more to follow. More and more, more and more. Always more to follow. It's an old hymn, probably in Sankey's, I guess. I'm going to have to stop now because I'm totally exhausted. But the gospel isn't exhausted. These verses are not exhausted. There's so much here. There's so much here. Bless God for his word. I have to ask you, do you know these things? Are they totally foreign to you? What are you going to say when you go home? Well, uh, Colin was a bit noisy tonight. Uh, and to be honest, I don't really know what he's talking about. Sounded good. He made a lot of noise. And he went to his arms and raving him up. You know? But uh, to be honest, uh, I don't really know what he, what he was saying. Is that going to be true of you as you go home? Or are you going to say, well, thank God for his word. I didn't realize there was so much there. Oh, Lord, I want to know more of this. I want to have a closer walk with this Jesus. I want more of his, his love and his, his life and his joy and his peace in my heart. I want to live more for this, this Son of God, this glorious God. I want more of him. Is that going to be a reaction? May God stir us in these days to the glory of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatness of the gospel of your Son. We thank you for his person. We thank you for his word. Words will never, ever convey the glories of Jesus. We have attempted, and perhaps feebly, we've attempted to somehow, some way describe, but we confess it's really beyond us. But we want to know more. We want to experience more of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, speaking of Mr. Hyam, we're singing another. I didn't, didn't realise we were actually singing two of his hymns. Great as the gospel was one, and now we're singing another one. 473. This really is a gospel hymn, but I 
think we can all sing it. Um, and uh, you'll see some of the verses, uh, words I trust are appropriate. 473, I've said this to you often, this tune is called Dim on Yesi, which is Welsh for none but Jesus, or simply put, Jesus only. So that's the tune, 473. The words are, Have you heard the voice of Jesus softly pleading with your heart? Have you felt his presence glorious as he calls your soul apart? With a love so true and loyal, love divine that ever flows from a saviour, righteous, royal, and a cross that mercy shows. 473.
And so, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house on your day. We rejoice to be amongst your people and to hear your word. And as we leave this place, we pray that we will know the blessing of God. We wish rich, and he adds no sorrow thereto. The blessing of the Almighty, the blessing of the triune God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, grant us your blessing, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.